Good evening and welcome to Friday Night Lecture and to my kitchen. A special welcome to any alumni who are attending as part of homecoming festivities. Also a reminder that about 10 minutes following the lecture, there will be a question period in a different Zoom room. The address for that will be put in the chat at the end of the lecture. Please join us. All right, ostrich time. There are only two mentions of ostriches in the book of Job. The first is from Job. By this point in their conversation, Job has become exasperated by his friend's attempts to convince him that his recent suffering is a divine punishment. Job is sure that he did nothing to deserve the death of his children, the loss of all his wealth, and his diseased body. Throughout, Job is stunningly articulate. His mention of ostriches stands out because it is, to use the technical term, really weird. He calls himself, quote, brother to the jackals, companion to the ostriches, end of quote. The second mention of ostriches is from God. God eventually does show up as Job requested and has some things to get off his omnipotent chest. In God's first speech, the final section is devoted to animals, including an ostrich. This passage too is really weird. Here's most of it. The ostrich's wing joyously beats, is the pinion, the plume like the storks? For she leaves her eggs on the ground and in the dust she lets them warm. And she forgets that a foot can crush them and a beast of the field stomp on them. Harsh abandons her young to a stranger, in vain her labor without fear. For God made her forgetful of wisdom and he did not allot her insight." End of quote. Making some sense of these two passages will be our focus tonight. Before we get to that, since there are only two mentions of ostriches, let me say why such a seemingly teeny topic deserves our sustained attention. The best advice I've received on how to decide on an essay topic was from a favorite professor of mine who compared a good topic to a small house on a big hill. He had a gift for similes. I think it had something to do with his being Irish. The house should be small because you want a topic that is focused enough that you can get inside it and feel at home in it. Your small house should be on a big hill because once you've taken up residence, you want to be able to peer from the window and gaze out at some vast landscape below. From our small house made of ostriches tonight, I'm hoping to look out and see how God is addressing Job's suffering. That God is attempting to address Job is not obvious. Although God speaks at length, it can seem like God isn't responding to Job at all. Job demanded to understand the causes of his suffering and called into question God's character as the creator and governor of a world that seems arbitrary and cruel. When God shows up and launches into a fiery speech that includes quizzing Job on the birth cycle of mountain goats, it can seem like God is either trying to distract Job or even bully him into silence. Ostriches suggest God may be responding to Job because Job is the first one to bring up ostriches. He raises the subject and God responds. The central question of this lecture then is, how is God addressing Job's suffering with God's description of the ostriches and other animals? Let's return to when Job first raises the subject of ostriches. And I've got a slide. In 
In gloom did I walk with no sun. I rose in assembly and I screamed. Brother I was to the jackals, companion to the ostriches. My skin turned black upon me. My limbs were scorched by drought. And my lyre has turned into mourning. My flute, a keening sound. Let's notice first the well-defined structure. The first and third lines detail how something or someone has abandoned Job. And that abandonment gradually encompasses different spheres of existence. Astronomically, the light of the sun doesn't shine for him. Politically, he no longer takes part in rational exchange. Physically, even his body has betrayed him. The second and fourth lines detail other companions Job has sought out. Human beings have been replaced by animals and the music instruments almost serve as artificial limbs. Initially, I wondered if the ostriches are like Job's pets. Perhaps we're meant to imagine him snuggling on his sofa with an ostrich or taking a long contemplative walk with his jackal. But jackals and ostriches aren't pets. Jackals, while they often live near humans, don't mix well with us. Instead, they are generally vicious towards human beings and feed on our trash and dead bodies. Ostriches also do their best to keep their distance. Human beings have hunted them throughout history for their meat, feathers, and eggs. But thanks to their speed and lethal kicks, they've succeeded in remaining independent from human beings until very recently. Elsewhere in the Bible, this same pair of animals is announced by the prophets as a means of God's judgment on the immoral city of Babylon. Soon, the prophet Jeremiah warns, Babylon will become, quote, a haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches, end quote. God promises to judge Babylon's inhumanity by having wild animals take over the city. So to be a companion to ostriches means Job is excluded from human community and has to resort instead to the company of the most wild of the wild animals. But Job isn't excluded from human community. Say what we will about Job's friends, they are devoted. And while Job describes feeling excluded, they're listening. Job's exclusion can't be literal. Let's return to our passage for another look. The first and fourth lines make reference to sounds, Job's screams and musical instruments. Perhaps the middle lines involve sound too. Elsewhere in the Bible, ostriches are noisy. In another prophecy of God's judgment on Babylon, the prophet says, quote, wild animals will lie down there and its houses will be full of howling creatures. There ostriches will live and there goat demons will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in pleasant palaces, end of quote. I'll have to save the dancing goat demons as a topic for another lecture. For now, notice our ostriches are rowdy. A city that used to buzz with human communication will soon be dominated by howls. So let's consider ostriches' sounds. Ostriches lack the organ that other birds use to sing, the syrinx. The syrinx modulates airflow to create vibrations that can make a wide variety of sounds. Some birds can make different sounds at once. The ostrich makes sound by filling the flesh around her neck with air and expanding it to about three times its normal size. While physically impressive, this means the range of sounds it can make is limited. Let's listen for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
If a human being sounded like that, you would wonder what was wrong. Job calls ostriches his companions then because he hears them crying out in pain, just like he is. But there's more. The first line of our passage refers to Job screaming in the assembly. While Job's friends recognize that he's in pain, they don't really hear it. Job feels like a howling animal who, though desperate to communicate, is not understood. Job has identified a sadly common experience. If when you are suffering, you have people who reach out to talk, it can feel difficult, even impossible, to find the right words. Even if you do find some words, often others' responses, no matter how well-intentioned, can make you feel unheard and misunderstood. As loneliness can feel most pronounced when you're with other people, so our suffering can feel even harder to bear when others try to listen and be supportive, but they just obviously don't get it. This particular sense of isolation and exclusion, the frustration of not feeling heard despite doing your best efforts to communicate your pain to others, this is to discover yourself, a companion of ostriches. Well, that got really heavy really fast. God is going to lighten the mood, at least temporarily. We'll explore God's description of ostriches in three parts according to three ostrich qualities. Ostriches are joyful, ostriches are foolish, and ostriches are freaks. God begins his description thus, quote, the ostrich's wing joyously beats, end of quote. Although most English translations don't convey this, God names the ostrich differently than Job. That's the kind of thing God does. Job used the relatively common name for ostriches, whereas God makes up God's own name. A rough translation would be wing of song. So God follows Job's lead by focusing on sound. But Job hears the ostriches crying out in pain while God hears them singing. Not only that, after God names them, God describes ostriches as joyously beating their wings. This description too departs dramatically from Job's. We come to our first quality of the ostriches according to God. Ostriches are joyful. What do they have to be joyful about? In the very first line, God makes two references to ostriches' wings. God seems to be focusing Job's attention there. Let's look at our passage again with wings in mind. The ostrich's wing joyously beats is the pinion, the plume like the storks, for she leaves her eggs on the ground and in the dust she lets them warm. And she forgets that a foot can crush them and a beast of the field stomp on them. Harsh abandons her young to a stranger, in vain her labor without fear. With the early rhetorical question, God invites Job to compare ostrich's wings with storks. One obvious contrast is that storks use their wings to fly and ostriches don't. But God moves quickly to consider ostriches as mothers. The main contrast then is between ostriches who are inattentive mothers and storks whose reputation as devoted parents is widespread. Storks build elaborate nests for their eggs while ostriches leave their eggs on the ground. Both male and female storks protect their eggs whereas most ostrich mothers leave another female in charge of their eggs. More on that soon. Well, if ostriches don't use their wings to fly or to cover their eggs, 
What do they use them for? And where does their joy come from? All ostrich observers I've read agree that ostriches' wings are most active during courtship and mating. God, in other words, is talking about ostrich romance. Let's take a look at a video that includes some key moments of that romance and watch their wings. I'll pause our video there for the sake of time and also to keep this lecture family friendly. Let me assure you that's only a small selection of the joyous beating of wings involved when ostriches are in love. Male wooing of a female can last up to three minutes. And based on research on contemporary African ostriches, we also know that there's a small but not insignificant percentage of gay male ostriches. Gay wooing is not only much lengthier than the straight variety, it can last up to 20 minutes. It also includes some joyous beating of wings that straight courtship doesn't. After the lover runs quickly towards his beloved, he suddenly stops and performs what one expert calls a pirouette in which the lover circles energetically in place beside his beloved. Nice. There's no way to know for sure whether the ancient Near Eastern ostriches that God is talking to Job about also included some gays. It would be fanciful on my part to suggest that God had both straight and gay ostriches in mind when describing their joyous beating of wings. So I won't suggest that as part of this lecture, but I will let you know that I can on occasion be rather fanciful. And we'll return later in the lecture to the subject of ostriches queerness. With God's reference to ostrich courting and mating, God has demonstrated that Job's description of ostriches was at best one-sided and at worst, false. Job hears the ostriches crying out in pain. God hears them singing for joy. Job pictures them excluded from community. God pictures them in the process of, shall we say, building community. So God is correcting, expanding Job's perception of ostriches. We're now in a position to begin to approach our opening question. How is God addressing Job's suffering with the ostriches' joyousness? I said earlier that God focuses first on the ostrich's wings. Job didn't mention wings. By focusing entirely on their sounds, Job had a very one-dimensional picture. With God's help, the ostriches transformed from a metaphor for Job's pain to creatures with rich lives and loves of their own. Job's limited view of the ostrich came from hearing his own pain in the ostrich's cries. The ostrich's call does sound concerning to human ears, but that's to assume we can apply our interpretation of human sounds to ostrich sounds. And if God is right, those sounds Job hears may be the sounds of foreplay and consummation. I think Job heard his pain in the ostrich's call because often our most intense feelings don't stay tethered to the experience that caused them. 
but end up informing our wider perception of the world. The most obvious example is that when you fall in love, your feelings for your beloved can influence your feelings about all sorts of other things. As all the pop songs and bad teenage poetry have it, when you're in love, the food tastes better and the birds sing more sweetly. It's as though the joy caused by your beloved has increased your sensitivity to, the, to all the joy to be found elsewhere. And if falling in love can sensitize us to the joys all around us, not only the joy of loving our beloved, the loss of some good in our life can sensitize us to the fragile and fleeting nature of all that we love. During his conversations with his friends, Job repeatedly despairs of how his past lacked any good and his future will inevitably be the same. He is projecting his current pain onto his past and future, just as he did with the ostrich. By reintroducing Job to the ostrich, God is alerting Job to how his perception of the world has been altered by his suffering. God is addressing Job's spiritual crisis by helping him to see that where he heard only grief, there is joy. God's focus on the ostrich's joy fits with God's broader strategy in the description of the animals. All of the animals, with only a partial exception, are wild animals. The two animals immediately before the ostrich in God's first speech, the ass and ox, have domesticated cousins who are essential to farming. God has chosen the wild animals then, of domesticated animals that Job would have been very familiar with. Here's part of God's description of the ox. Quote, will the wild ox want to serve you, pass the night at your feeding trough? Bind the wild ox with cord for the furrow? Will he harrow the valleys behind you? End of quote. With all due respect to God, the endless series of rhetorical questions can get rather tedious. But they do serve to make God's point very clear. No matter how hard Job tries and how familiar he may be with the domesticated ox, the wild ox cannot be made to serve him. God is confronting Job with his limited view on the world. And that limited view doesn't even include the wild cousins of the animals he knows so well. Just in virtue of being human, of course, each of us has a limited, tiny, really, perspective on the world. But one way our tiny view can become still tinier is if when we're experiencing pain ourselves, we look around us and see our pain reflected back. God's description of these wild animals, including our joyous ostrich, shows Job in full vivid detail that there is much, much more to see than that. If God is inviting Job to open his eyes and look more carefully, let's do so ourselves and return to our central passage. The ostrich's wing joyously beats is the pinion the plume like the storks, for she leaves her eggs on the ground and in the dust lets them warm. And she forgets that a foot can crush them and a beast of the field stomp on them. Harsh abandons her young to a stranger, in vain her labor without fear. For God made her forgetful of wisdom and he did not allot her insight. Given how much time we just spent on the ostrich's joyousness, reading this passage again may surprise us. God seems to be insulting the ostrich. She's harsh to her young and forgetful of wisdom. God doesn't insult any of the other animals. And so we've come to our second quality. Ostriches are foolish. 
God's description of ostrich mothers seems based on a particular division of labor that they observe. One male mates with multiple females over the course of a single season. The females who mated with the same male will all lay their eggs in the same shallow hole in the ground. But only one female will take responsibility for protecting all the eggs. In God's description, the ostrich's foolishness is tied to her forgetfulness. God's phrase, forgetful of wisdom, recalls how the ostrich forgets that her eggs may be crushed. But forget seems like a strange choice of words, with all due respect to God. Usually we say someone forgets what she once knew, but God made the ostrich that way. She acts from instinct. The language of forgetting does highlight the ostrich's peculiar relation to time. She fails to learn from the past. God seems to be suggesting that her past experience does not inform her present actions. God further says that the ostrich's labor was in vain and without fear. Fear I take to be an emotion that is focused primarily on future consequences. When you encounter a bear in the woods, fear can prepare you for what might happen next. And if you've been well-educated as I was, Fear may help you to recall the handy rhyme for dealing with bears. If it's black, fight back. If it's brown, lie down. So the ostrich's forgetfulness shows inattentive to the, inattentiveness to the past and her lack of fear shows inattentiveness to the future. Her foolishness comes then from her utter immersion in the here and now, neither letting her past inform her present nor anticipating what the future may bring. And so we return to our opening question. How is God addressing Job's suffering with the ostrich's foolishness? Notice first that the ostrich is very unlike Job. The first story we hear about him reveals what an attentive parent he was. On days when his adult children get together for dinner, Job wakes up early in order to make sacrifices to atone for whatever, his, whatever sins his kids may commit that night. Job doesn't wait for his children to do wrong and only then act to prevent the negative consequences. When Job detects even the possibility that his children may do wrong, he figures out a way to prevent those anticipated consequences. Because our ostrich neither learns from the past nor anticipates the future, she's oblivious to such consequences. So perhaps then God wants Job to learn something from Job's differences with the ostrich. There's one detail in God's descriptions of the animals that prevents me from concluding that the ostrich serves only as a contrast to Job. Each of the first three animals that God describes resemble Job. Earlier, Job compared himself to a king several times. The first animal God describes is the lion, king of the beasts. Job is an attentive parent who sacrifices animals for his children's sins. The second animal, the raven, hunts to feed his children. The third animal, the mountain goat, ends up losing her children, as Job did. Each of these first three animals seems chosen by God to resemble Job in some way. Could that also be true of our ostrich? I think so. Job's darkest fantasies anticipate God's description of the ostrich. When Job curses the day he was born, 
as we've got it up on the slide, he says, quote, why did I not die from the womb? From the belly come out, breathe my last. Why did knees welcome me? And why breasts that I should suck, end of quote. Later in another dark fantasy, he directs a similar wish at God, quote, and why from the womb did you take me? I breathe my last, no eye would have seen me. As though I had not been, I would be, end of quote. In these two disturbing passages, Job asks his mother and God to act almost identically to how the ostrich mother does. Just as the ostrich mother does not make a nest for her eggs, Job wishes God had not taken him safely from his mother's womb. Just as the ostrich mother leaves her eggs unattended, Job wishes his mother had let him fend for himself. I said earlier that God's description of the ostriches pictures her as living constantly in the immediacy of the present, inattentive to both the past and the future, and so unable to connect her actions to their consequences. Job's desire that his life had ended right after he was born reflects a, de a desire to obliterate his past. In the midst of grief, remembering our, our past can at best be bittersweet, at worst agonizing. Remembering our past can remind us of all that we've lost. And Job's repeated desire to die soon reflects a desire to extinguish his future, the future he dreads. He wants to be freed from the burdens of remembering his past and facing his future. Job wants a human version of the ostrich's foolishness. If God is embodying Job's darkest wishes in the ostrich, how does that serve to address Job's suffering. Well, as we saw, Job had complained that despite all his talking, no one had really heard him. God evidently has and is proving it. Even at Job's darkest, God was listening. And God, and God uses what God heard to reflect Job's foolishness right back at him. Recall that God had insulted the ostrich as harsh with her eggs and forgetful of wisdom. I said earlier that the language of forgetfulness is strange, given that God made the ostrich that way. It's not as though she forgot how she should act. Instead, she's following her God-given instinct. The same is true, I think, of harsh. The ostrich shouldn't be morally condemned for the way she treats her eggs, if that belongs to her nature. God applies intellectual and moral judgments to the ostrich that would apply better to a human being. If Job were to see his own dark wishes embodied in the ostrich mother's treatment of her eggs, perhaps he is also meant to hear God's condemnation of the ostrich as a condemnation of those very dark wishes. The ostrich mother can't act otherwise, but Job can. Job's foolishness, unlike the ostriches, is not God-given. God may be inviting Job to consider whether there is a wisdom available to him that could recover the goodness of his past and some sense of hope for the future. But after the disturbing picture of the ostrich as a bad mother, God concludes his description on a more positive note, quote, now on the height she races, she scoffs at the horse and its rider, end of quote. The ostrich is scoffing at the poor schmucks who are eating her dust in this final line recalls the ostrich's joy while courting and mating in the first line. 
The middle of God's description contains the ostrich's disturbing parenting habits, but this is framed by two examples of the enjoyment she finds while being at work staying herself. There seems to be something good about her foolishness. So maybe there's something good about Job's foolishness too. Hold that thought. The ostrich's need for speed anticipates the next animal God describes, the war horse. This horse is trained to fight alongside human beings in battle. The horse receives the longest description of any of the animals in God's first speech, a slightly longer description than the ostrich. God seems to really want Job to pay close attention to these two. Here's God's description of the horse. Also on the slide, quote, do you give might to the horse? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? He churns up the valley exulting. In power goes out to the clash of arms. He scoffs at fear and is undaunted, turns not back before the sword. With clamor and clatter, he swallows the ground and ignores the trumpet's sound, end of quote. Notice the reference to fear in the third line. God said the ostrich was without fear. The horse seems aware of fear, but scoffs at it. This scoffing recalls how the ostrich scoffs at those who chase her. And for yet another similarity with the ostrich, the horse embraces risk, even delights in it and seeks it out. The horse throws himself onto the battlefield before the trumpet signals that the fight has begun. He seeks out the thrill that comes from risking his life, from the intense excitement of confronting the most dangerous dangers. Job's suffering, I think, has made him resemble this horse. Like the horse, during his conversation with his friends, Job embraces risk and courts danger. While he does so in his consistently combative manner with his friends, his gloves really come off when he's calling God out. Job describes God like they're in a battle. God is a cruel warrior who has put a target on Job, surrounded him with troops and shot at him with poisoned arrows. Job also repeatedly requests a face-off with God in the form of a legal trial. Job would be the prosecution and God the defense. And then there's the rather sticky problem of who could possibly serve as judge. But if God ever showed up to a trial, Job predicts that God might stubbornly refuse to offer a defense or lash out at Job in anger. Yet Job says that no matter how God responds, regardless of the dangers he's courting, Job will confront God and take God on. In one, one of many bold statements of his desire for a trial with God, Job says, quote, I would speak and I will not fear him, for that is not the way that I am, end of quote. Job's lack of fear recalls both the ostrich who is oblivious to fear and the horse who scoffs at it. I don't think it would be a stretch to see Job's interactions with his friends and God as though Job is running and scoffing while his pursuers try to chase him down. And by demanding a showdown with God, Job is throwing himself onto the intellectual battlefield with the same reckless chutzpah as the warhorse. But this comparison between Job and these animals fails in at least one respect. The risks the ostrich and horse take are minuscule in comparison to what Job risks by provoking God. The ostrich and horse certainly take bold physical risks, but Job's risk-taking 
is downright ontological. Recall that God said of the ostrich, quote, God made her forgetful of wisdom and he did not allot her insight, end quote. If the ostrich is foolish because God made her that way, presumably there is something God, good about her foolishness. And in God's opening rhetorical question about the horse, God asked Job, do you give might to the horse? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? The answer of course is no, Job did neither. But God isn't only pointing out what Job didn't do. God is claiming the horse's power and beauty reflect his work. The ostrich's foolishness and the horse's recklessness then aren't departures from God's intention, they reflect it. I think we need to at least consider the possibility that just as the ostrich's foolishness and the horse's recklessness have their place in God's world, so they may have their place in a human life. The war horse reminds me of another horse we encounter in our program at St. John's. In Socrates' image of the human soul in Plato's Phaedrus, Socrates pictures the soul as composed of a charioteer whose chariot is led by two horses. The white horse is beautiful, moderate, and obedient. The other dark horse is ugly, dominated by passion, and prone to disobey. At first, it seems Socrates wants to warn us against the influence of the dark horse. This is not the kind of horse you would want to bring home to your mom. But when Socrates describes the roles of the horses when a human being falls in love, it turns out the dark horse has an absolutely essential role. If the charioteer and white horse had their way, we'd never speak a word to our beloved. And if human beings never gave themselves over to the madness of love, Socrates says, we would never have art or theology or philosophy. And what kind of a life would that be? Thank the gods, in other words, that all our souls have a dark horse. My comparison between Socrates' dark horse and God's war horse only works if Job's resemblance to the horse plays some essential role in addressing his suffering. I think there is ample evidence that this is the case. For one thing, God shows up for the trial that Job requested and the results in the end are transformative for Job. Job says after God's second speech, quote, by the ear's rumor I heard of you and now my eye has seen you, end of quote. Job believes he has been given the greatest blessing a person can receive, a direct encounter with God. He regards God's guided tour of creation as the equivalent of seeing God face to face. If Job had not been like the ostrich in her foolishness and the horse in his recklessness, Job would never have challenged God and God might not have shown up in the way he did. And not only that, in God's final words of the whole book, he condemns Job's friends twice, saying, you have not spoken rightly of me, as did my servant Job. Job's friends tried to comfort him by preaching their staid old pieties about God's justice, but Job sees right through them. Job's friends have smothered their inner ostrich and war horse. They're all white horse all the time. God's commendation of Job implies that God is also commending Job's resemblance to the ostrich and the horse. Just as the ostrich's foolishness and the horse's recklessness have a place in God's world, so their human equivalents have a place in a human life. 
given the possible consequences, Job was utterly foolish and staggeringly reckless to demand a confrontation with God. And yet, according to God, Job spoke rightly. If we're meant to follow Job's example, then when suffering overturns our lives, or we're enraged by injustice, or God seems out to get us, we shouldn't numb ourselves with comforting half-truths or easy answers. There is a time and a place in our lives for the foolishness of the ostrich and the recklessness of the horse. Otherwise, we may not make any real progress in our pursuit of justice or truth, and we certainly won't see God face to face. We've now come to our final quality of the ostrich, and the final and shortest part of this lecture. Ostriches are freaks. Stay with me. God in the book of Job is really into details. So the ostrich's placement in the list of animals is no accident. The first two animals God describes, the lion and raven, suggest a potential way of dividing all the subsequent animals into two groups. One group of four-legged land animals and another group of two-legged birds. But God has put the pesky ostrich after the ox and before the horse, interrupting the series of four-legged land animals. While the ostrich is a land animal, She's also got wings, so she sticks out. Let's rearrange God's order, with all due respect to God, and move the ostrich with the birds. Then she'd be with other two-legged winged animals. But God focuses on how the other birds can fly, so the ostrich would stick out among them too. By placing the ostrich where she is in the list of animals, I think God wants Job to notice that the ostrich doesn't fit in. The ostrich is a freak. Let's return to our opening question one last time. How is God addressing Job's suffering with the ostrich's freakishness? One possibility is that God intends the ostrich's freakishness to frustrate Job. He and his friends both reflect an unwavering commitment to theoretical neatness. Job's friends think his suffering can be understood in terms of God's justice, working entirely in terms of reward and punishment. After Job no longer shares their view, he assumes an opposing position that is also bracingly neat. God is arbitrary and cruel. In God's first speech, God offers Job a lot of evidence that the world is orderly and full of purpose. Even so, God does not depict a world that is neat and tidy. Take the ostrich's freakishness, for example. In addition to having wings and not flying, the ostrich has a number of other freakishness features. Here are three more. All other birds have three or four toes. The ostrich only has two. All other birds combine defecating and urinating, which might be familiar to some of you if you've been shot on by a bird. But ostriches, wisely, I think, separate these activities. Finally, unlike most other male birds, ostriches have a penis. Now, I suspect Job may not have known all these details. Even so, I think God is using the ostrich's freakishness to show Job that the dazzling variety of creatures and their wondrous particularity exceeds our human capacity to systematize and classify. It's not that the world is irrational or that we can't make progress in understanding it, but all of our theoretical accounts are provisional and incomplete. But I don't think the ostrich's freakishness is only meant to frustrate Job. 
Let's return again to a line from our passage. Quote, for God made the ostrich forgetful of wisdom and he did not allot her insight, end quote. There's a strange detail here we have not yet noticed and it passed me by until a very helpful email exchange with Mr. Nelson. God refers to himself not as I in this line, as God does everywhere else, but instead in terms of his name, or is it a title, God, and a third person pronoun, he. Rather like after I've done something stupid, I say, oh, Ron, idiot. Or after I've done something rather great, I say, yes, Ron, prince. And please forgive that sudden break with St. John's etiquette. If God made that switch for a similar reason that I regularly do, then it seems God's description of the ostrich prompts God to look at himself from the outside, as though God is considering his own work in making the ostrich. God is like a painter who discovers an early work that she had forgotten about, and she's surprised and even impressed by it. When presenting the ostrich to Job, God is made to recall and marvel at an early work of his own. While God frequently seems to beam with pride when talking about the other animals, it's only the ostrich that prompts God to step back and consider himself in this way. I wonder if it isn't the ostrich's very freakishness that elicits this response from God. There is something playfully exuberant, perhaps even comedically excessive in God's creation of the ostrich. Thus the ostrich's freakishness doesn't just frustrate Job's desire for theoretical neatness. It also reflects the surprising range of God's creative instincts. I referred to the ostrich's freakishness in the subtitle for this lecture, Queer Birds in the Book of Job. The older sense of the term queer is synonymous with the freakishness I've discussed so far. I also wanna try out the possibility that the newer sense of the word queer may also indirectly apply. I take queer in its newer sense to refer to those who don't conform to, tr to traditional expectations around sexuality and gender. And as a gay man, I count myself among them. I have spoken at length so far about how I think God is using the ostrich and other animals to address Job's suffering. I think the author of the book of Job may also be using our ostrich to offer a friendly rejoinder to the creation account in the opening chapters of Genesis. If we look in Genesis 1 to find our ostrich, I'm sad to say she is nowhere to be found. On the second day, God makes a dome which divides water into two, the water above the dome, which becomes rain, and the water below the dome, which becomes oceans and lakes. In the days of creation, what God forms on one day, God fills on a later day. And so on the fifth day, God makes animals to fill the dome, sea animals to fill the oceans and birds to fill the sky. When God makes birds, God says, quote, let birds fly over the earth across the heavens, end quote. God's explicit purpose in making animals with wings is so that by flying, they will fill up the sky. In other words, Genesis excludes the possibility of winged animals that can't fly. Part of the whole point of giving them wings is for them to fly. This may seem like a minor detail, and it is. But I think it's possible that the author of the book of Job is taking issue with the, with the ostrich's exclusion from Genesis. By excluding the ostrich and in other ways too, creation in Genesis may somewhat reflect the kind of theoretical neatness that the book of Job is out to challenge. While it's certainly true that most birds use their wings to fly, 
That's not true of all birds. And distinguishing between what can be said of most and what can be said of all is a distinction that can make a big difference. It's on these grounds, I think, that our more contemporary sense of queer may be related to the ostrich's freakishness in the book of Job. If Genesis describes what is true of most birds, but not all of them, that same gap may exist elsewhere in its approach to creation. Perhaps I will hesitantly suggest when it comes to human gender and sexuality, what we see in Adam and Eve may be true of most human beings, but not all human beings. And if the ostrich is a freak, but a freak intended by God as part of the exuberant creativity of his creation, then perhaps the same can be said of the human freaks who identify these days as queer. I expect the author of the book of Job would be surprised, perhaps even outraged by this suggestion. Even so, having done my best to enter the house we have built of ostriches, when I look out the window to see what I can see, this is one implication that appears to me. Let's return for one final look at our central passage. There is one final detail to consider in the last line. Quote, now on the height she races, she scoffs at the horse and rider, end of quote. The Hebrew word that is translated on the height is a word that is usually used to describe flight. God has described the ostriches running as though she were flying. While ostriches can't fly through the air, God seems to be saying that they have their own special form of flying. The ostrich is very fast. When they sprint, they can reach speeds of about 45 miles per hour. And for longer distances, they can maintain a speed of about 35 miles per hour. They can, for example, outrun leopards. Check YouTube for that. Even these freaks who don't neatly fit in have their very own form of flourishing, their own particular kind of excellence. Let me sum up what I've said so far before moving on to a conclusion. I have argued that contrary to how it can seem, God isn't trying to distract Job or bully him into silence. God is addressing Job's suffering through the ostrich and other animals. The ostrich's joyfulness confronted Job with how he was seeing his own pain everywhere and so he had too narrow a perception of the world. The ostrich's foolishness at once condemned Job's dark wish to obliterate his past and extinguish his future, while also commending the recklessness which had him demand trial with God. And the ostrich's freakishness frustrated Job's desire for theoretical neatness and gave him a living, breathing example of God's exuberant creativity. And God's response to Job, I think, did have its desired effect. By way of a too hasty conclusion, I want to consider briefly that effect by turning to some of Job's final words after God's second speech. I'll save exploring God's second speech to our conversation in the question period, if anyone's interested. Here is one translation of Job's words, quote, I relent and I repent in dust and ashes. There is a key translation decision about how to render the word that here is repent. Repent seems a fair possibility. He said some things that were false and got carried away. Even so, I find this translation banal and moralizing and the book of Job is never, never either of those. Another possible interpretation that I find more persuasive is this. I relent of dust and ashes. Dust and ashes were traditional symbols of mourning to say that he is relenting of dust and ashes 
is to affirm that he is ready to embrace his life again. Not that his pain has subsided or all is right with the world, but he has a renewed sense of why life is worth living. A final translation option, and one I owe to Mr. Drucker is, I take comfort in dust and ashes. Throughout his responses to his friends, Job lamented that everything in the world is ultimately nothing but dust and ashes. And what a depressing fact that is. Then after his encounter with God, Job finds comfort in dust and ashes. Why comfort? God's speeches largely agree with Job that the world is shot through with pain because all this dust, no matter what form it may temporarily take, is so fragile and fleeting and will inevitably return back to dust. Yet God also shows that same dust by the forms it takes, provides us with endless reasons to marvel. Perhaps Job discovered that no matter how weary or broken we are in body and soul, there are always myriad and wondrous creatures all around us if we look and listen, including our ostrich, that joyous, foolish freak. And that, I think, is a very great comfort.